So flow also has a cycle and it sounds a little bit like this. There's a struggle period at the beginning. Then there hopefully can be a time where you release from that struggle, find flow, hopefully, and then you there's a recovery component to it. And it's the fourth the recovery piece specifically is the sort of the last part of the cycle, but it's the place, honestly, that we start. Hi, folks. My name is Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Chris Bertram. Chris is the Senior Director of Applied Neuroscience at Exos, an associate professor at the University of Fraser Valley, and the skill acquisition lead and flow coach for Canada Snowboard. Chris has over 20 years of experience as an applied neuroscientist and human performance coach, and he works with just an absolutely enormous variety of elite performers across disciplines and domains. Now, this episode is really important if you're somebody who wants to learn something and apply it under pressure. We dig into priming neurochemistry for learning and skill acquisition, how to learn things that are stress-resistant, and more than anything, about the power of flow states in learning and performance. Before we get started, a quick reminder, if you want to join individuals and teams around the world who are working to perform better during times of crisis and emergency, there are so many ways to get involved with the Emergency Mind Project community, and we would love to have you. The easiest way to get started is to sign up for our free newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure, which you can find at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Our sponsor for this episode is EM Coach. So EM Coach is a program that I use personally to study emergency medicine, and it's one that I've seen my residents use to great effect. Its core functionality is as an emergency medicine board review program, but it does a lot more than that. From the student side, it has a seriously deep question set, but also a large variety of really engaging lectures and an inline textbook feature. From the instructor side, you can use EM Coach with your team as a total learning platform, doing things like assigning readings, lectures, and questions, and tracking your learner's progress. So if you work in emergency medicine, you should definitely check them out. You can find them at emcoach.org. That's E-M-C-O-A-C-H dot org. And for the Emergency Mind Project community, they are offering a substantial discount if you use the code EMERGENCYMIND at checkout. That's E-M-E-R-G-E-N-C-Y-M-I-N-D, Emergency Mind, all one word. So check them out at emcoach.org. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode with Chris Bertram. I hope you enjoy. For folks that don't know you, can you start and just give us a brief overview of who are you and what do you do? Sure. Yeah. So Chris Bertram, I uh, have a PhD in the general area of human motor learning, human motor control, applied neuroscience, that sort of a thing. And that uh, that academic pursuit led me into the halls of academia. So I hold a faculty position as an associate professor up here in Western Canada at the University of the Fraser Valley. So I've been there for about 21 years now. So teaching, doing research, all the usual academic work. But there was a point in my career where I was conscious of the fact that I've always been a person who's interested in what's happening outside of the halls of academia and what's going on in the real world and where the ideas that I was talking about were the ideas that I was investigating in a research lab actually going to be meaningful and or helpful to people in the real world. So, you know, again, my my primary academic interest is in the field of learning. How do we learn? And, you know, what you find out pretty quickly when you start reading academic papers on learning is that a lot of what shows up in a research lab doesn't actually have much application to people who have real skin in the game, and particularly people who are operating in really high consequence environments, 
lot of the athletes that I work with fall into that category, but certainly the work you do in the medical profession certainly would fall into that category. But just generally in life, how do we learn how to process? And then how do we do it in such a way that it shows up when the moment arises? So I'm really interested in this thing called stress-resistant learning, which is the kind of information that you have absorbed that will show up when the moment arises and when the pressure builds up. That's what really gets me excited. And so, you know, that's uh, academically and professionally, that's, that's sort of where I've gone. So that's led me down. I've also got another interesting position. I work for a company called Exos, which is known primarily in the athletic world. So that, you know, we've got facilities all over the U.S. We train Major League Baseball and the NFL and U.S. Special Forces you know, sort of on a physical conditioning level, but they hired me as the senior director of applied neuroscience a couple of years ago to come in and think about ways that we could really leverage the mind, leverage the brain and the nervous system so that we can get more out of the physical self. And, you know, that's led us down all sorts of interesting roads into corporate America and thinking about ways to do our work better every day. And so I do a lot of work with them. And I'm also uh, my probably my favorite job title is I work with the Canadian National Snowboard Team in the role of flow coach. And that that's a bit of a, a funny uh, name, but it, it really my job is to help us continue to acquire skills faster than any other nation in the world so that we can go and win more gold medals when the Olympics show up every four years or in the X Games and that sort of a thing. So again, it's about how do we learn the most quickly, the most optimally, and then how do we do that in such a way that when those big moments in the big stage arrives that we can show up and be the best version of ourselves. How does your calendar work? Like, I, I just, like separate <laughs> from all the other like deep questions I'm going to ask you. I just, how do you yeah. stitch all these things together? What an interesting mix of stuff. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I was a long time a believer in pen and paper calendars, <laughs> but that's just I've learned to lean into uh, the powers of technology yeah, and nice. Google calendars. <laughs> it saves my life, Dad. And you know, you're a busy guy too. I'd be curious yeah. to know how you do it. Fumbling around some of the time, I think, is the answer, and, and <laughs> trying to put the, the right priorities in front. But yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, all right. So, so many threads here to go on it, and they all seem to revolve in some sense around this idea of learning and learning to perform in high consequence moments, or what is it that gets us there? How did you get interested in that? What was it? What was early Chris like? Were you personally applying these things? What got you interested in this concept of what it takes to really deliver the skill when you need it? Yeah. Well, I grew up as an athlete myself. And so I played uh, a lot of sports growing up. I'm Canadian. So, you know, I'll be stereotypical and say that I played a lot of ice hockey and lacrosse at a fairly high level. And so I've always been really interested in, in how to perform at a high level, how to play in high stakes games. And so outside of organized sports, I've always been really interested in, you know, things like surfing and skiing and snowboard and that sort of a thing. And just, you know, seeing the, the progression in certain sports fascinated me, right? Like a great book I read a few years ago now that really changed how I think about this was a book by Stephen Kotler called The Rise of Superman. And, and he outlined some really interesting things that were happening in the uh, so-called action-adventure sport world and talking about how there was really exponential learning or progression. Mm -hmm. as they call it, in those sports. And 
you know, whereas traditional sports, you see a lot of like incremental progression happening, right? If you look at, you know, what happens in sprinting or what happens in baseball, like you don't see the record books getting blown up every four years when the Olympics come around or every year when there's a new championship up for grabs. And and I just got really interested in in what it was that was kind of underlying a lot of that growth and that rapid learning in so that kind of led me down an interesting path where I started to get really interested in this concept called flow state and and how we can utilize certain elements of uh, this phenomenon to drive the learning process and how we can use, maybe tap into it when the moment shows up to help deliver on the skills that we've kind of hardwired. And so, you know, it came from an honest place of my own self-interest and the things that, you know, I was passionate about growing up and and then just getting really interested throughout the course of going through university and having some really great mentors and getting involved in, you know, just being in really interesting classes and thinking, wow, I can have a career in this. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, sign me up. And, and you know, here we are 20 some years later. Yeah. Since you mentioned it, let's plus on that flow state idea a little bit. What is mm. flow state? How does that relate to learning? How does that relate to performance and, and you know, dive us into that? Sure. Yeah. Well, First of all, it, the term comes out of the positive psychology world. There was a gentleman by the name of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi who actually sadly passed away just last year. Right. But yeah, you know, recently, he, yeah, and he wrote he was you know he was on a quest for understanding what human happiness was all about. It wasn't he wasn't necessarily interested in extreme sport athletes or musicians or anything. He was just going around the world trying to figure out what is it that happens to people. What do they feel? What do they experience when they're at their best in life? And what he found out was that regardless if you are an athlete or if you're a world leader or if you're an assembly line worker, the same you know, eight or nine characteristics tended to show up. Like there's things like time passing very strangely, right? Like time goes by, like, you know, an hour seems like five minutes or sometimes the opposite happens and everything gets slowed down. You know, there's sort of this loss of your sense of self. You know, there's a connection that emerges between you and an instrument or you and another human being or group of people. And, you know, what he came to realize when he was interviewing people on that quest, the word flow kept coming up as one idea. When you're in, when you're at your best, one idea seems to just flow into the next. Or mm -hmm. if it's a movement context, one movement just seems to flow into the next. And lo and behold, he he coined the term flow state, which is a state of consciousness, an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we tend to perform at our best. That's the origins of the term. And then, you know, in my world, it it got on my radar more when the neuroscience started to catch up with some of these concepts, when you start looking at what's happening inside the brain and the body, when people get into flow, you know, what are the electrical pattern changes in the brain on EEG, or what are the neurochemical changes that show up when people are in flow, or what are some of the, you know, there's deactivations and activations throughout the brain that get very typical when we get into flow. And and that's where it got really interesting for me, because when you started to, as we started to understand the mechanisms that are going on internally, when flow comes around, it opens the door to possibility of, well, how else can we trigger some of those mechanisms with intention? And so maybe then flow could become an intentional process instead of one that's seen as this fleeting, magical, mystical peak state that only shows up when all the stars in the universe align. So I started reading papers about it and 
one of the early papers I read was a learning study. And, and what they showed was there was a group, the title had something to do with a flow intervention on learning. And what they showed was there was two groups of people in the study. One group had a flow intervention and the other group did not. And they had to go and proceed and try to solve this puzzle. And the group that had the intervention learned anywhere between two times as fast and five times as fast mm. as the control group. And that got my attention because, again, I do work in this field and I try to publish papers on learning and you just don't see effect sizes like a control group being double the experiment or the experimental group double of the five times. And I thought, honestly, Dan, the first time I read it, I thought that's probably bullshit. I just didn't believe that that should sure. happen. But lo and behold, I, I started digging into the literature a little bit more. And it turns out that's a fairly robust effect. Hmm. And there's still certainly a lot of work to be done there. But when you pair that empirical data with what you see happening in the real world, when these types of internal phenomena start to show up, it certainly uh, got my interest in. And that's where I started to dive into it. And how, how does that work? Like, what are the logistics of that for Canada snowboarding? Right. Like, mm. I, don't, I don't want you to give me away all the secrets of the team, but maybe a couple of them is fine. Sure. Right. But like, you know, what does it look like? Like, how does a team have a flow coach? Mm. How do you map that idea of flow interventions and, and accelerated learning under certain conditions into folks who are already at the top of their field by the time that they get to you in one form or another? Yeah. So it's not a secret. I'm happy to talk about it in as much detail as you want to hear. But so, you know, primarily, or originally, they brought me in to consult with them just on, you know, what are the lessons, you know, the motor learning field or skill acquisition field goes back, you know, 50 years, really in earnest. And, you know, there's a lot of things you can do just in terms of how to set up training conditions, what we can do to set up practice conditions so that you will see learning show up more quickly. A really simple example of this, some sort of the classic skill acquisition world is that if you prevent a miss, if you provide confusion and challenge within the learning environment itself during practice or training, or whatever we want to call it, shredding in the words of snowboarders, if you give them challenge within those conditions, you are going to see higher rates of learning. So those are the kinds of things originally they brought me in for. But when, when I started talking to them about, well, you know, there are things that you can do before we even get on snow that can prime the nervous system so that we can get some of these advantageous neurochemicals on board. Maybe we can drive some of these brain changes ahead of time so that when we get those nice weather windows that we need. So I work with the big air team as an example. So, you know, snowboard has a bunch of different disciplines. The group that I work primarily with is the big air team. And so they're doing really big and dangerous things and the conditions have to be really good for it. And they don't come around all the time. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that we're capitalizing on that. And we also want to make sure that we're reducing our likelihood of injuries and the rest of it. So there are things that we can do and practices that we can do in advance to prime us for making the most of the time. There's work that we do long before we even get to the snow days where we start to build up, you know, a build of skills of mindfulness and self-regulation and things that we can do to help better set ourselves up for the best type of learning conditions. Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time talking about sleep because, of course, 
that's where real learning happens. It's not while you're awake, it's while you're asleep at night. So we try to maximize that. And then on top of it, we talk about specifically some things we can do for flow. So we've got various activities that we do both as uh, warm-up activities to try to, again, drive some of these brain changes that we're looking for. And I've got some cool tech that I use with them. I've got like a mind-controlled drone helicopter that I teach them how to fly using nothing more than their mind. So it's all sorts of things that we can do. And uh, yeah, yeah. Huh. You know, we use this model in the emergency mind project that's like prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, right? This loop, mm-hmm. this constant loop we're running. And that that came out of sort of, you know, having a ton of focus in my training, mostly on the moment of performance. Yeah. I've got to do a particular procedure under pressure. Okay. Maybe I've trained that procedure once or twice in a lab, but then that's it. Go, you know, and you don't really have, at least when I was coming up, this focus on the whole cycle of it. The idea yeah. that you have to get yourself ready to perform, you have to have tools you can deploy in the moment to buffer stress and recover from mistakes and pivot. And then you have to have an ability to, to come down back to normal and to evolve and learn from what you're doing. And yeah. so much of that is mirrored, I'm hearing in what you're saying, right? Like you have the idea that your neurochemistry needs to be in an optimal place to learn at your best. You yeah. need to have the flip side, the yin yang sort of effect of work and balance of stress and rest to create that growth. And it's so cool to hear that be programmed so intentionally into, I mean, really you're talking about the culture and the DNA of the team, right? These are the core beliefs that sort of guide you that we can improve ourselves and we have to modulate our neurochemistry in order to do that well. Am I reading that right? Absolutely. And I I like the model or the, so the cycle that you described. So it's prepare, perform, recover. And then what was the last one? Evolve? Evolve. Evolve. I love that. It's not surprisingly, it's really similar to a cycle that I described that relates to flow. So flow also has a cycle and it sounds a little bit like this. There's a struggle period at the beginning. Then there hopefully can be a time where you release from that struggle, find flow, hopefully, and then you there's a recovery component to it. And it's the fourth, the recovery piece specifically is the sort of the last part of the cycle, but it's the place, honestly, that we start. And I love hearing that you're you're putting that into the work that you do, because, you know, if we just look at the life of athletes for a second, you know, their whole, you know, how much time do they spend actually competing? It's such a small minority, right? And so what else do they do with their time? Well, they spend a fair bit of time training or preparing to use your word. And, you know, the rest of their existence, especially at the highest levels of sport, are all dedicated to some version of recovery, right? Mm -hmm. And then you look at, you know, the medical profession, or you look at corporate America, and that model is flipped completely around the other way, where it's compete, 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 right? There might be a little bit of training that goes on in between those high stress moments. And then recovery is just an afterthought, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we're not paying attention to that specifically, if we're not thinking about sleep and other forms of active recovery throughout the day, you know, we're just, we don't have a chance. Like talk about, you know, what, what holds somebody out of flow, a hundred percent reliable way to keep yourself locked out of flow or high performance is to be under recovered. And so we spend a lot of time making sure that we get that right, not just with athletes, but again, a lot of the work that I do with Exos in the corporate world as well. That's a really important message that we try to uh, highlight. 
Okay. How do you do that? Right. Because I think, again, the message that I got coming up was perform, 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 prepare, perform, perform, perform. Yeah. Good luck on your, you know, we used to have this thing called a, a doma, a day off my ass. Right. So you'd like, you'd work the overnight shift and you'd work maybe three or four overnight shifts in a row. And then mm. you'd finish at 7 a.m. And then you'd be back on at 7 a.m. the next morning. And so that mm. was your day off, right? And that right. was your that was your doma, your day off my ass. Like, how in the world is that actually flip going to recover like that? And yeah, I'll tell you, I'm I'm very lucky. It's a lot better at the attending level. Like, there's less shift work. You have more time between shifts to recover, but it doesn't. You know, the problem set doesn't go away in that sense. And it's yeah. hard to express to folks, especially folks that have been entrenched in this particular model of doing things for a long time, that actually recovery and evolution is exceedingly valuable. So oh how gosh, do you do yeah. that? How do you change that messaging around that and and you know feel, stay in snowboarding drift to corporate you know whatever sure. you want to do to answer that like like how do you yeah. translate those messages? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is sort of build the value proposition for sleep and recovery generally. So I I usually talk about, you know, anything that w- so let's define our terms. What is active recovery? What are the things that count there and what are the things that don't count there? So when I think about recovery, it's anything really that you do in your day that puts energy back into the battery, right? And sleep is number one on that list. And a lot of people think of sleep as a very passive process where you just close your eyes and you're unconscious, but there's so much going on during sleep that is restorative, right? And so we need to think about quality of sleep. We need to help people understand what that even means because we live in a hustle culture where, you know, we it's a badge of honor to be underslept and you know there's the 5 a.m club and all the rest of it and whenever somebody tells me that i think okay it's fine you want to be in the 5 a.m club great but you better be in bed by nine o'clock like straight up you can't sacrifice this and so i think when you start to educate people on you know number one what are the downsides of being underslept what does good sleep look like and then how can you do it a little bit better right mm-hmm. give them some action steps it really resonates. And so, you know, once you get there, you've got a fighting chance. But, you know, the other important thing is, you know, I'm a whoop wear. I've got this thing around my wrist that tracks my sleep and my recovery every day. And, you know, one of the things you find out if you work the way we do and the way a lot of people do is that, you know, there are days when even a good night's sleep is not enough to bump the recovery score out of the red. And there are days where I have actually today is a good day. As a matter of fact, I had an okay sleep last night, but my recovery score was really, really low. And so what does that mean? Whenever I see things like that start to show up, it reminds me that I have to double down on practices during my waking hours mm. that are going to be restorative and can rejuvenate my battery a little bit. So that's everything from having you know mindfulness practices to moving my body to making sure I'm hydrating throughout the day and taking care of my gut health and all the rest of it. There's just a multitude of components that can all fall into that category where you're thinking about recovery throughout the waking state which can then help you have a better, more productive sleep as well. But, you know, again, sometimes you need both. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm, I'm reminded, and I say this quote all the time because it just like hit me like a ton of bricks when I heard it and I keep I keep focused on it. Uh, 
former mentor, friend, ER doctor cohort with me, Eric Antonsen, who worked a long time with NASA, says, mm. you know, when he was designing some of the the human spaceflight interaction stuff, he used to say it this way, that that the human system requires maintenance and repair, just like the propulsion system, the navigation system, and anything else. And if you forget that, then you're going to overload and break one system just like anything else. And I'm misquoting him entirely, but that idea is stuck with me so much. Like, how are Absolutely. you supporting and repairing your human system? Yeah, it is. It's that's exactly it hits it right on the mark. And, you know, one of the other things that I try to impress upon people, and this gets to maybe some of the details of how do you get people to change their way of thinking. One of the things you can do, one of the things that's important to impress upon people is that you actually don't need to, you know, spend three hours in a spa to rejuvenate yourself. There's a really interesting literature that's been building over the past few years, especially in the organizational psychology world around the power of micro breaks mm -hmm. and how impactful even five minutes can be in terms of restoring some energy back into the system. And so, you know, when you look at when I said before, when when I look at my uh, whoops scores and I see that my recovery is really low and I start doubling down on some of these practices and building in some micro breaks throughout my day, I find that that helps. It's not like, you know, if you thought about like plugging your phone into the wall, like you're not going to get it fully recharged in 10 minutes but you're not going to continue to deplete the battery either. And you're going to put a little bit more in so that by the end of the day, you're not completely run ragged and coming home to your family or whatever it is completely depleted. And so those little things can make such a big difference. And I, I'm fascinated by the, the research that's going on here and just how impactful it can be just to, you know, you got, we're spending a lot of time in front of screens these days. A lot of us are having a lot of, you know, back-to-back -back meetings and the the data on what five minutes can do to help change the actual state of the brain is really impressive. And I think once people understand that, it becomes manageable, that they know that they don't need huge chunks of time in order to make a real difference in the way that they're showing up. Is there a structure to that micro break that you use personally or that you recommend for your, you know, your athletes and clients to use? You know, I think one of the things I think about with both flow and recovery is that it's really personalized, right? Like, mm -hmm. so what works for me may not necessarily work for you, but here's the big thing to think about. You know, we are running a lot of our days heavily sympathetic. So you've got a fight or flight or freeze signal coming a lot of the day, right? Especially if we're living stressful lives, which most of us are. And we've got this other side of our autonomic nervous system called the parasympathetic system, which can be engaged to push back on the stress signals. And this is real biology. And these are real tools that have measurable immediate impact. And the more we can spend time pushing some of the buttons that can activate our rest and digest or our parasympathetic nervous system, the better it is for our everyday. So, you know, I can literally track this, you know, if I just do things like for me, the things that I do is I do certain breath work patterns where there's an exaggerated exhale, any mm -hmm. kind of breath work that you do where the exhale is longer than the inhale is going to bias your relaxation system to come on board. So that you can do that in five minutes and it will bring your heart rate down. It'll bring your blood pressure down and it will calm the mind, right? So that's one thing you can do. If I'm looking at a screen, 
So even if I'm in a meeting, it doesn't mean that I have to stare directly at the screen, right? Because, you know, there's one of the things that we know about the way the brain works is that when your eyes are hyper-focused on a small point, you get a small stress response, right? It's just what happens versus when your eyes are fully panoramic. Like when we look out at the ocean, right? You've got the ocean out your window. You look out there, your eyes stop focusing on a small point and they get into this state of panoramic vision. As soon as that happens, guess what happens? Heart rate comes down a little bit. Blood pressure comes down a little bit. The mind relaxes a little bit and you're pushing directly against the stress signals. Those are things you can do right here, right now, even if you're in a meeting that you can't get out of. But for the rest of the time, yeah, like just, you know, try not to stare at a screen. If you've got a little bit of time, like don't look at your phone in between meetings, because even if there's nothing on the phone that is particularly agitating, the mere action of looking at it is going to give you a nice underlying hum of stress that you could otherwise do without. Mm -hmm. So how we use our breath how we use our eyes. And then there's other practices. Like I'm a big proponent of mindfulness meditation practices. And, you know, I do that not necessarily as a relaxation tool, even though it happens. It's a fringe benefit. I think of it more as a, a tool of learning to better tune into the signals that I'm picking up from my brain and body. So if I start to notice that I'm feeling a bit tense in my chest or a bit tight in my abdomen because of stress or my mind is getting a little bit scrambled, I'm able to notice that and then intervene with myself, right? Or, you know, on the other side of that, you know, it's not always just about turning the dial way down. There are times when we want to be really switched on, right? So that's when you can intentionally try to activate your nervous system so that you can sharpen your focus. You can get energy into the blood and get the muscles working. You can turn that dial in either direction, but specifically when it comes to relaxation, I think anything you can do, you know, to increase your awareness of when it's needed, the better. You know, I, I see that as a really common theme among a lot of folks that I, that I work with in the emergency mind project and also with the mission critical team institute, that idea that the better that state management of any sort really mm -hmm. starts with introspection and introception. The idea yeah. that the better able you are to name and process what you're feeling and to identify signals in yourself, the better able you are to then, like you said, turn the dial a little bit or tune yourself one way or the other, you know, what sort of a note you want to sound at that moment. I yeah, think that's really I important. I, th I think of it almost as, you know, it, it's the starting coordinates on your GPS. Like we, mm -hmm. we might be feeling, you know, understimulated and we want to be the best version of ourselves. We might be feeling overstimulated and stressed and we want to dial back. Well, it's really hard to make a meaningful change in your state, as you said, without understanding where you're beginning. You can't get into your car and plug in a destination until it knows where you are to mm -hmm. begin with. And I think of, the skill of mindfulness, or we could just call it awareness, inner awareness as your starting points on your GPS. If you don't have that, you know, good luck trying to get yourself into a better place, right? But once you build up that skill of awareness, then you pair it with a skill of how can I meaningful and intentionally regulate into a more optimal place? Sometimes that's down regulatory, sometimes it's up regulatory, but without the awareness the ability to regulate yourself properly becomes very challenging and problematic. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a sequence to these skills that can be built up. 
start with building up awareness. Can you notice what's happening in your mind and in your body from moment to moment, at least better than you do now? And then once you have that, can you learn these skills of breath work and your vision and you know how to use your body in a way that can change your state? All of those things are really powerful tools, especially if you can tune into when they're working and where they're needed. Yeah, we've been doing that for a while now with all of our incoming interns. So, you know, you've you've gone through medical school and you're just about to hit what we call the July problem, which is mm. all of a sudden you go from, you know, not being a doctor to being a doctor and you might yeah. be, you know, the first responding to somebody having a seizure or something like very serious and you've learned it in theory, but mm. congratulations, it's July, you're up to bat for the first time. Right. And so now what we've been doing over the last oh, maybe two or three years is all the incoming folks get time with me right on the first day to essentially do this first mindfulness mm. introception thing. Here's nice. what the Yerkes-Dodson curve is. Think about some times when you were here, like, what did you feel like? And trying to get them used to that idea, because if not, and I, I'm curious if you find the same thing among the different groups you work with. If you don't do this, if you don't program in interception and, and learn to think about it like your GPS system, like you're describing, your brain, you put something in there. And when you're feeling these things that you don't like, a lot of us tend to go to, I suck at this. This Mm -hmm. is signals that I'm doing poorly, that I'm a bad person, that I'm a bad doctor, that my parents don't love me, that the person's going to catch on fire. You know, it just sort of like catastrophize and fall off that cliff like that. And and maybe that gets us into a realm, which is in some sense, the, the opposite of flow, which is choking, right? Where we put ourselves in this hole that we have such a trouble getting out of. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that's, that relates to your question that that's specific to the topic of flow is one of the things we know that happens inside the brain when flow starts to show up is that part of your brain that's calling into question whether you're a good doctor or a good athlete or a good leader or whatever it is, it is your frontal lobes. Like the frontal cortex of your brain is where executive function happens and willpower and conscious decision-making, but also the inner critic lives up there. There's, we could put you right now into an fMRI dad and have you tell me a story where you really blew it or where you did choke. And as soon as you start to do that, there's part of the lateral side of your frontal cortex starts to really get active. That same part of the brain is one of the places that starts to deactivate when we start to get into flow. And there's some really interesting deactivations across the frontal lobes, Mm -hmm. generally speaking. And so what starts to happen when we get into flow is that inner critic goes quiet this sense of connection with others starts to emerge. Our ego starts to get quiet and freedom shows up because we're no longer sort of operating under the executive oversight as much of our frontal lobes. And what happens there is our skills are allowed to emerge kind of unfiltered by the frontal lobes. And so this is why it's so interesting when, you know, you you hear this all the time in sport, like paralysis by analysis or, you know, and pick your pick your term here. But what we try to strive to do is figure out one of the things you, you know, you talk about, you know, doing this with intention. We know, for example, that there are ways that you can create this condition. And so it's called, by the way, if you're curious, it's called transient hypofrontality, which just means temporarily your frontal lobes are in patterns of deactivation. And we know, for example, that you can in about 20 minutes of mild to moderate exercise or about three to five minutes of pretty intense exercise, deactivate your frontal lobes to a large extent. It's called exercise-induced transient hypofrontality. 
you can do this. Like you can move your body and change the state of your mind. And so, you know, it's not so much to me about what can you do because you have two choices here. Either you're going to try to use one part of your brain to talk the other part of your brain into operating better, right? Positive self-talk, which can work for some people sometimes, but there are other tools that you can use. You can leverage your body to change the state of your mind and you can free yourself of a lot of those doubts. And so I almost feel like confidence in a lot of the things that come along with it is a subtractive process more than an additive one necessarily. Oh man. Okay. That that's so interesting. This is, this is something I was just sort of digging into the other days. Where is it more appropriate when you're operating in high consequence environments? Where is it more appropriate to be positive self-talk, confident, I've got this, I can do this. And where is it more appropriate to be hyper-realistic about what your probability of success at a thing is? Mm, and it, yeah. this drifts very slightly from what you're saying, but I think it links up yeah. to it because a lot of us are trained to use very proactive, positive self-talk to get us through everything, which runs us a risk of dropping us into situations that, geez, we, maybe we shouldn't actually be in to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I, the 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 people that I spend a lot of time with, particularly the snowboarders, are a great example of this because what they're doing is incredibly dangerous. I mean, mm -hmm. the line sure. progression in big air snowboard these days literally is fraught with risk, like a tremendous amount of risk, life or death risk in many situations. I've been on snow where we've had some pretty scary incidents. And, you know, when you talk about the person who's up at the top, you know, looking down this 200 yard in run at a 70 foot gap jump, trying to decide if they're going to, for the first time ever, attempt to rotate five times with two flips versus four. Right. And so, yeah, there needs to be some critical thinking up there. Right. Have you done the work? Do you, have you have you done the visualization? Have we built up the requisite skills? But I'll tell you what, when it's time to go and it's time to send it, that's when you have to shut that part off. And that's mm -hmm. where it becomes, okay, now how many tools can we have in our quiver to help shut it off? Positive self-talk is one way and it works for some people sometimes. But to me, I want to give people as many tools as they can. So how can you calm down parts of your brain? How can you breathe your way through that? Because again, you can breathe your way into a state change. You can turn that dial down a little bit so you can help to get the brain into more of a an optimal state where they're not overthinking. And there are other things that you can do for this. But to me, it's just about, okay, do your thinking when you need to do your thinking. But when it's time to go, we need to quiet that part of the brain down and to allow these skills to emerge and give ourselves the best opportunity of landing that particular jump or, you know, in your case, you know, they're successfully executing the procedure in the emergency mm -hmm. room, you know, like you do the work in medical school and in your internships and in your training, but look, when it's time to go, you know, you have to let yourself execute and, it's not that it's without any kind of intervention of thought, but I think it's when when thoughts become doubts and doubts become emotions and and then we just lose track of where we all are together. That's where we run some serious risks. Yeah. Man, there's this really deep concept of that, you know, we also employ sometimes very similar to what you're describing about once you push off and you're going for this jump, 
you know, the concept of liminality, right? Like once you cross into the space, the only way out of it is through it. You have to make it from the air back down to the ground one way or the other, hopefully in a good way and not in a bad way, yeah. right? There are times when we deliver a particular medicine and it, you know, it turns off somebody's ability to breathe and mm-hmm. we have to take over and put a breathing tube in. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a rough simplification if you're listening sure. to this, you know, and you know what I'm talking about, whatever. But, <laughs> but the idea is that there are these spaces where you are in a liminal space and you have to get through it. And that to me fits exactly exactly what you're saying. You have to turn off the doubt and you have to allow your training to bubble up to the top and make it happen. Yeah. You also have to understand when that's not appropriate and when pivoting is actually the right thing. When do you pick your head up and, you know, maybe we're considering a a sport that's more like, you know, rugby or basketball than it is like big air jumping where you're not mm-hmm. necessarily in that liminal space, but it's so easy to feel like you are, right? Yeah. Or you're doing something like in, a, in medicine where, okay, I have committed to this path, but but actually have I, or can I take my head back and sort of redirect a little bit in there? So how do you handle that tension, right? Like maybe if you're looking, you know, you're teaching a lesson about commitment and eliminating doubt and allowing your training to come through, but you're teaching that to to big air snowboarders on Monday and then CEOs of a whatever sure. company on Tuesday where their realities are, are a little bit different. Yeah. How do you map those problem sets to each other? Well, a while back, in our conversation, I mentioned that this the cycle of flow starts with struggle. And so we have to, first of all, acknowledge that it, before any flow shows up, there's always a preceding point where there is struggle. And sometimes that struggle is really, really fast, right? If you jump out of an airplane, you're probably standing, you know, on the edge of the plane with a lot of struggle, but you go airborne and you, you know, you let gravity take over. And typically, as long as you don't go into a state of panic, flow kind of takes over. It's a quick transition from struggle into flow there. But other times, it's a very long and protracted process. And in skill acquisition, that happens all the time. It happens to me in my own work life a lot of the time. So there's, I'll give you how we could do this with athletes and I'll come back to how this can show up for the rest of us. But, you know, a lot of times, first of all, it's just acknowledging that struggle is the pathway, right? Expect it, have that growth mindset of, you know, through challenge comes learning, growth, development, progression, call it whatever you want. It's a necessary step. And if you don't have enough of it, by the way, back to my earlier comment on, you know, the learning literature, if you don't have enough of that agitation or challenge on the front end, you just don't see the results on the back end. It is a necessary step. So let's frame it that way. And then when you start to feel that agitation show up, you know, we talk about well, what is that? What's causing that agitation? A lot of times for them, it's adrenaline, right? You feel like, you know, what does adrenaline do? It sort of jacks up your heart rate and your blood pressure and you feel super energized, but it also gets your mind very focused. And a lot of times you get focused on the wrong thing, but it is a focusing chemical at the level of the brain. You can use that. You can use that neural energy as jet fuel for your performance. So a lot of it has to do with understanding when those setbacks happen, that that actually is the pathway to learning. So stick with it. Now, that isn't to say that there can come a point of diminishing returns for that much struggle and agitation. Those are great times where it's just, okay, let's go try something else for a while. Let's maybe just go for a cruise. Let's just go and do some quick laps and get creative and, you know, just get away from it for a while. Step away and then come back to it. 
And sometimes that's all it takes. You just need to remove yourself for a while and come back and you can get through that struggle, maybe get into that release phase where flow can show up. That's for athletes. And I said, I would give you an example from my own life. So, you know, you know what it's like in the academic world, Dan, we have to do a fair bit of writing from time to time. Writing is my absolute nemesis. I have to do it because it's part of my job, but it's the part of my job that I will procrastinate on to no end. And I feel a sense of dread whenever I've got a looming writing deadline. And so when I sit down to do writing projects, I'm very intentional about how I do it. I usually front end it with a walk because I want to quiet down my frontal lobes. As I was saying earlier, I don't want the voices of doubt. I don't want that thinking about the deadline or how hard it was in the past. High performance lives in the here and now. So I want to make sure that those parts of my brain that are reminding me about the future and the past are quieting down. So I'll do things like get some exercise before I sit down at my desk. I'll remove distractions, might even do some breath work. And then I will set a really clear goal. Because goals, really clear, like intentional goals about what I'm going to do in the next 90 minutes are really powerful what we call flow triggers. If you know where you're going and you've got a very clear landmark, it's much easier to get moving and get some momentum going, right? So I literally will sit down on day one and I always say this story, it's a bit embarrassing. Like on the first day of a writing project, I'll give myself 90 minutes to write 250 words. It's nothing. It's a small paragraph. But I know for me on day one, that is going to be significant. But I say, look, I'm 90 minutes 250 words go. And usually what happens is, especially at the beginning, I just, I question every single word I type. I'm just grinding over everything, but I get through that 90 minutes, right? And then I'm intentional about what I do after. So I usually, what I'll do is I'll go for another walk and I'll just get away from it. I'll do that pivot. And all of a sudden I'll get out there and I'll, you know, I'll be walking along or, you know, maybe I'll go for a light run or something. And about 20 minutes in again, when I know from the data that my frontal lobes are getting quiet again, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you dummy, that's the word you were trying to find there. That's the idea you were trying to articulate. And it starts to become clear to me and I'm getting in past the struggle and it's releasing a little bit. And then I'll go back in and I might do another half an hour of editing leave myself a few breadcrumbs and then try to go back to it. So it's about intentional work and intentional navigation of my, you know, my brain and body system to help get it, you know, that the probability of some flow showing up even in those moments is higher. How does that relate back to this idea you were describing, if it does, of stress-resistant learning at the beginning? Because mm-hmm. it strikes yeah. me that there that they're probably pretty similar, right? The conditions that it, that allows you to perform are they're similar to the things that will build the stress resistant learning. Yeah, well one of the things that I that really caught my attention in your book Dan and in, in the things I've heard you talk about on different podcasts is, you know, this idea that if you, you know, you have to prepare yourself for the arena by training in some version of the arena, right? So a great example of this, no matter you know how much training you have, you know, real life, 
seldom looks like a simulation, right? Or it seldom looks like, you know, the Super Bowl seldom looks like what practice looked like despite our best efforts. But that doesn't mean there aren't things we can do. You know, there's a great example of this last night in the NFL, if you're watching the game last night, right? I'm sure you, if you didn't see, you heard about it, but like all those medical staff that showed up to help DeMar Hamlin last night, you know, that had never happened in the NFL before. That particular type of a situation Uh of crisis and emergency on the field had never happened before. A version of it happened in the NHL a few years back, interestingly, but it wasn't as dire. But, you know, how did those people prepare themselves for that moment? And undoubtedly, it had to do with a lot of the work that you talk about where you have to train yourself in stressful situations. There's this, you know, long exist, you know, the, the, in the world of psychology, you'd call it state dependent learning where, you know, your likelihood of being able to pull up your skills. And when the matter, when the moment shows up is higher, if you've trained in that same sort of state of mind and body. So the more we can do of that, the more likely it is that when stress shows up, we can recall the skills that we worked so hard to get into our brains and bodies. So it has to do a lot with purposely designing challenge into the learning environment, challenge, stress, call it whatever you want. Colleague of mine, uh, Mark Guadagnoli, wrote a great, great paper a few years back called The Optimal Challenge Framework. And it talks a lot about this where, you know, there's kind of, you know, you mentioned that Yerkes and Dodson curve. It sort of looks like that where, you know, in the learning environment, you need to be stressed if you want to see optimal learning show up. But if you go too far, right, you've kind of tipped the balance. So there's this right. sweet spot called the optimal challenge point. Hmm. And that's what we're striving for in these, you know, when we talk about how do we set up both our internal environment for learning, but how do we set up the external environment around us? to help precipitate some of this challenge and struggle. It matters, but it's so hard, right? Because if you're the one doing the learning, it feels like you're failing, right? But we we know there's, you know, we've got evidence in, you know, four different sciences that show that actually is the pathway forward. It shows up in philosophy, right? The obstacle is the way. There's truth to that, right? To a point. And then you get diminishing returns. And, you know, that's where sort of the art and science of how we, you know, we design training environments and simulations really, really matter. But so it's hard for the person doing the learning. But, you know, as you, as somebody who does this training for others, it's also hard, you know, for coaches to sit and watch and not want to lean in and try to help, right? Because you see people struggling. What do we want to do? Want to help them. But no. You can't. You have to let people struggle because that's what the world is going to show them and they need to learn how to do it. So it's a challenge for both the learner and the coach, teacher, whatever, to manage that. But it's mm. it's everything. Yeah. We use this model sometimes, the the a wedge model, just like a simple wedge you'd like put into wood to, to crack mm-hmm. it or something. The idea that like when we're performing a skill, like I'm dropping a line into somebody's neck or I'm you know doing whatever, that's a high wedge moment. Right. Yep. That is like life and death, high consequence, high stakes. Yep. The exact opposite of that, a low wedge moment is maybe I'm opening the kit and sort of playing with the pieces of it and sort of figuring it out. And the idea is that it's not perfectly linear like a wedge is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the model breaks down a little bit, obviously, but you want to be clear with yourself in this moment. Am I doing high wedge practice or low wedge practice? Mm-hmm. Because if I think I'm doing 
low wedge practice, then great. I'm going to toy with new ideas and experiment freely and there's low consequence to it. If I think I'm doing high wedge practice, I have to prepare myself mentally for a different set of things. I have to know Mm -hmm. I'm going to fail and I'm be frustrated. And I'm doing that on purpose for a particular reason. And everybody sort of being clear about that, I think is a really clutch piece of it. Yeah. It it speaks to, I mean, I'm sure you run into this as well when it comes to training. Like you, you have to like there's a methodology almost to it. You're, you you want to introduce that challenge in those, you know, different types of wedge scenarios, but with some logic, right? Because you can't necessarily take somebody right. who's new to the game, new to the field, and, and immediately drop these high wedge, high challenge situations Absolutely. on them. Right? One of the sayings that come out of the motor learning world of skill acquisition world is that you know, the two main factors you have to keep in mind whenever you're designing a training environment, is the complexity of the skill and the skill level of the person. Mm-hmm. And it's very different. You know, what works for learning for somebody who's highly skilled is very different than what works for somebody who's just figuring out and just trying to get the idea of the task, right? So depending on what stage of your learning you're at, those different levels of wedges can be really important that you can sort of use that as a practice mm-hmm. to help build somebody's skill set over time and being intentional about how you start to build that wedge, right? So I think it's a really important principle for training or for coaching or for teaching. Yeah. Chris, I get to be, I can keep doing this for like days, man, but I, I want I want to be mindful of your time and energy and everything else and make sure that you get the time to recover before your next thing. Um, <laughs> as we maybe bring this to a bit of a close here, I want to give you the chance to challenge folks listening to this. So whether those are folks who are in the world of emergency medicine or they're in some other high consequence, highly uncertain, you know, if they use the word <laughs> VUCA or whatever it is that they use to describe their yeah. universe that is rapidly changing and full of uh, complex things to go on. What do you want to challenge them to do differently after they listen to this? Maybe the first thing that comes to mind, it, I, I'm ripping off the title of a book that I read recently, but it's about doing hard things. Mm. You know, so what I, when I say that, what I mean is, like purposefully do things that are going to challenge you. And and I don't necessarily mean, by the way, go and run a marathon or go and climb a mountain. Do the thing that's hard for you. We live in a society where so many people are doing, doing, doing. And sometimes the hardest thing for people to do is to be still and to just take time and recover or take time and, you know, just take time to reflect, journal, meditate. For a lot of people, that is the hardest thing you could possibly prescribe. Mm. But I would say, think of what is challenging for you. What is the hard thing and lean into it? Because the more of that you can do sort of in a safe, controlled way by choice, you know, the more you will just get used to the idea, like you will build up a resilience to stress over time. If you're in, if you're purposefully designing your life around doing stressful things, you know, could be getting into cold water. Cold plunge is a really hot topic these days. Sure, it could be that. But you know what? If you're Joe Rogan, that's easy for you. Go and meditate. Go and do a yoga class. Do something that's outside of your comfort zone. And I think the more we do that, you know, the more likelihood is that when life stresses show up, we've got some tools at our disposal that we can deploy in those moments. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. Honored to have you. 
Dan, I just want to say thank you for having me. Like I said, I've been a, a big fan for a long time now, and I'm glad that we finally got to connect and have this conversation. I feel like it's the first of many. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.